This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Religious language fascinates me because it is something that is deeply human. When I first started working on religious language and teaching it, I started from the assumption that if you want to study religious language, you look for people who call themselves religious and you study the way they talk. But my students and I quickly found that the boundaries between what counts as religious language and what some people might think is just kind of secular ways of talking are very difficult to map out. We found religious language everywhere, in every domain we could think of. And I, I started challenging my students to find it in some very unexpected place. So in the process of studying religious language, I found, again, that it's something universally human. It's something that we use to communicate our deepest longings, the things that we love the most, the things we hate the most. We use this kind of language to talk about our most fundamental assumptions and beliefs about who we are as human beings. What is this world we live in? Is there anything beyond the material world? What has value? What's right and wrong? Hmm. Is there life after death? All these kind of main, these huge questions. We use this kind of language to build community, to break community to deal with conflict and crisis and life transition. So it's it's a hugely important part of what it is to be human and to express some of these deepest questions. Is there maybe a symbiotic relationship between religious language or metaphors? So I think of the word conversion. Uh, conversion is a word that can start non-religiously. It gets picked up in a religious movement. You have to be converted. And now it becomes religious language that is employed for these other uses, the deepest longings, exploring reality, etc. Yeah, well... Some of the most common religious language that people use, whether or not they're religious, comes from the religion that they're most familiar with. So in this kind of Western world dominated by Christianity, people borrow, even people who are not Christians, they will borrow from that language because it evokes a sense of mystery, a sense of weight and meaning and authority. And then they'll apply it to what we might call a secular use. But that's not always the case. And I think this is where religious language gets really messy because communities are always inventing their own kinds of special language to mark themselves out. And even if we don't call them a religion, they could still behave like a religion and create their own kind of ways of talking to identify themselves as a member of the community, to articulate their philosophy of the community. So one example I've looked at that, that listeners might be familiar with is the Burning Man movement, which mm. is a global phenomenon that started, I think, what is it, in the Arizona desert or something like that. But they have a kind of statement of their Ten Commandments, but they also have all this very 
specific vocabulary, which I have no idea what most of it means, that they've developed. So that hasn't come from a world religion, most of it. It's just developed in the process of practicing their their kind of the kind of rituals in their community as they get together. They even have, I think, a Burning Man version in Israel, like out in the desert somewhere as well, with all the crunchy Israelis. Is it, and I think also, I've watched documentaries on the Burning Man, so I have some idea of this insider language that they have. Is it religious language or is it like insider language? Because, you know, in the, I was in the military seven years and there's all kinds of insider speak. My mother, my wife were nurses. There's the same thing where you just like have all of these acronyms and all of these ways of saying things that don't in my mind, function necessarily as a religion, but they're just because you, there's so much specialized knowledge, so much like deeply embodied knowledge. Yeah. So that's true of, I mean, I'm thinking immediately now of academia, you know, we have specialized terms and, you know, if you go into the language of, if you study computing, you start to learn all this technical language that would be unknown to people that are not in that discourse community. It's all about how it's used in the context. And Burning Man has set itself out as a philosophical movement that is different in some ways, you know, than the military. Although I think, you know, certainly within the military, there are people who behave as if that's their religion. So, yeah. So, you you know. Including myself. There was a few (laughs) years where it it was my religion. Yeah. So anything can be religious. And yeah. it, it, it doesn't have to be the case that a community will set out to kind of think of themselves as a religion or even that all the members will think religiously about it. So, you know, I could play tennis and just enjoy it as a pastime. Someone else could be playing tennis and, you know, that the commitment that they have to it, the, the, the fusion of their identity with tennis could be such that you could say that's you know, that's operating like their religion. So that's another complication when talking about religious language is that it's it's so dependent on context, it's dependent on the individual and how they think about themselves in relationship to whatever they're doing, Yeah, whatever, whatever so, they're using that language to refer to. Going the other direction, I, I think of the phrase, come to Jesus moment, which I hear, even when I was in the corporate world, you'd hear that bandied about by people who are not Christians or religious at all. So let's just, you know, if we could follow a phrase, uh, come to Jesus moment is borrowed from American evangelicalism, or maybe I don't know how far back that phrase goes, but uh, maybe the Jesus movement. So when that gets picked up in, I mean, it really does have some kind of embodied significance. There really is, you're talking about a paradigm shift or something like that. So is it no longer religious when my boss at work says you need to have a come to Jesus moment about your email habits? Yeah, that's that's a really good one. I mean, the reason why people use that kind of language is because of its power. Mm-hmm. Religious language is among the most powerful kinds of religious language. So if your boss wants to get you to do something, religious language is a great tool for that because it communicates authority. You know, it, mm-hmm. it communicates that weight. And you think, okay, there's urgency here. I have to do it, you know. He's even saying the name of Jesus, even if you don't believe in Jesus, you know, it's carrying all that meaning. Now, does that count as religious? Well, it depends on, again, the context. I mean, if if you. If this is kind of if, if the boss is talking about something that is, you know, 
the only way of doing things in your, you know, in, in your workplace, or if it's something that is sort of unquestionable, something that, mm. again, it sort of, it behaves as, as, as properties, or it has properties of being religious, that it, like it has that kind of authority, the kind of being, un, you know, you can't question it. You know, it's starting, it's, it's more about a resemblance model. This is what, you know, when right, I, when I right. talk about what is religion, what's not religion, it's not so much is it or isn't it. It's a kind of spectrum of resemblance. Is it starting to yeah. approximate or look like a religion? And that's where things, you know, then you make a case. You can say, well, yeah, this is starting to enter that territory, which is, I, yeah, I mean, because of the, the complexity of religious language, it's very difficult to, to develop a model where you just say religious language is always like this, or it's always in these circumstances. Mm -hmm. Even over time, something that tends to be used religiously, that could change. You know, it could lose that meaning. So, it, you know, we have to always be looking again at the local context, where it's being used, who's using it, for what purpose, what's the outcome, mm -hmm. what are the stakes here? That Those kind of questions will help us answer. It makes me think of corporate, like HR world, when you're onboarding somebody, you're bringing them into your culture, you know, your particular culture, culture. And then you're trying to get them to see all kinds of transcendent properties of the company, you know, like our mission and vision. And you're like trying to get them to buy into like this narrative where your company is doing these great, providing some greats for the world or something like that, or maybe just goods for the world, not even greats. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying wherever that language, whether it's religious or not, is being used to kind of appro approximate or appropriate aspect, you know, like for a lot of evangelical Christians or Catholic Christians, that kind of like, we're here to serve the world around us. That language has some like deeply metaphysical divine connections, but you'll find the exact same language in service industry in America. Maybe not service industry in the UK. They, they function on a different yeah, paradigm like, from yeah, what I can yeah. tell. Well, your, your point about corporate discourse is, is something that's, I've been thinking about a lot lately because, you know, there's a, there seems to be a lot of, so the corporate world has has adopted a lot of the kind of overtly Christian language. I mean, Google is a really good example of that. Mm. They have almost mastered this idea and fostered a loyalty by their employees using overtly religious language. But then the church also has kind of started to behave more and more like the corporate world. And one of the overlaps I see between you know, organized religion, especially Christianity and the corporate world is the kind of vacuous language, what we might call corporate speak. You know, I can't mm -hmm. remember the examples you gave, but, you know, like talk about making an impact or, you know, come on board oh, with yeah. us, you know, and they, all the, the terms are changing fairly rapidly. There are new terms coming in. And I think a lot of that has to do with an appearance of authority so, you know, if you don't know exactly what these terms mean, you know, you, you sort of, you have to pretend that you know what they mean so that you look like you're participating, you're on board, but the language shifts and moves quickly. And it's often, you know, you sort of look at who's, who is introducing the new language. It's often top down. So there are these kind of influencers or big corporate mm. figures who are coming up with these new brands and slogans. And that's, that's a kind of control 
and a, and a kind of you know language is is ultimately power. You know, whoever gets to to decide how to talk about lived experience and the you know the the kind of language that we used to talk about being a member of a community, whoever gets to control that is in charge. Mm-hmm. And so you know there's a, there's a lot of talk about vacuous Christian speak. Christianese. I want to talk more about that. (laughs) It reminds me of the corporate language that, I mean, I hear that in in higher education more and more, more. Mm -hmm. That's something that's, that's really seen an uptake in the last decade, but just the vacuousness of it is, it's very, you know, it makes you feel uncomfortable and think, what do these terms even mean? But you feel obliged to use them. Mm Mm-hmm. To mark yourself as a member, you know. Oh yeah, I'm I'm part of this group. I'm born again. I you know I'm I had a G- come to Jesus moment. Let's live in community. You know, let's be intentional. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> you're like you're hitting my sweet spots here. Let's let's we need to be well. You, you can't be deeply impactful unless you're being intentional. I mean that's. <laughs> Yeah, so I actually banned certain words from papers uh, from students, you know, glory, faith, I'll I'll have a whole slate of them, but I haven't gone, I haven't gone quite that far. And one of the things I was reading this linguist, Ben Yagoda, and he he just had this nice little section about cliche. And and it struck me that it's not Christianese, Christianese is just Christian cliche is essentially all it is. And I, and I get, I see that for me as a Christian theologian, I see it as the bane of my existence, the thing that deteriorates and rots any kind any any kind of actual intentionality is evaporated or evacuated maybe through the use of this language. But for me, and I hadn't thought about it until you just said this now, for me, cliche is problematic because you're not saying what you mean and, and just say what you mean instead of falling back on the cliche. But I had not thought about it as much as showing people I belong to this tribe. But then the question is, well, who is who are, who are making these uh, linguistic inventions for us that show us we belong? Because that's not coming out of nowhere, right? Where, where Do you trace this back anywhere? Like, uh, like, is there a hierarchy of religious language influencers? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, insider language has always been a thing, but I think the kind of Christianese that we're seeing is something of more of a modern development and mm. and come about as we've seen the rise of celebrity pastors, hmm. celebrity church leaders who mark themselves out with a particular way of talking, a style of talking. So, you know, and it's a kind of branding. And so you by talking like that, you are associating with with that person, with that movement. It's popular. It's seen as you know relevant. That's another one of the. There's <laughs> yeah. even a relevant church I've learned about. But um, oh, hey, in, in New Jersey, I shouldn't say this. In in a place very close to me, there is a whole branch of churches called Liquid Church, which I still have not figured out what the liquid <laughs> is that they're selling there. But it's not grape juice or water. That's all I know. <laughs> It but they're no brand, they're well branded. Yeah, it has no well, form. Yeah. It fills every form. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I didn't even think of the obvious <laughs> theological implications here. Well, I mean, yeah, this is something I probably shouldn't say, but I always think the simplest thing, you know, it's it's not some complex metaphor they're thinking of. It's actually just, oh yeah, let's you know look at liquid. It fit. 
it, right. it, it right. has a very actual superficial meaning in most cases. But yeah, I, I, I got particularly disturbed by this whole thing we're discussing when I started looking at conversion narratives mm. with my students, because, you know, I, I came across, for example, in, you know, Christian magazines, they'll have top 10 conversion narratives of 2020. I think mm. what, what makes a conversion narrative hit the top 10 and what, which ones would be excluded and on what grounds? So there's a kind yeah. of policing, not even just of the kinds of language that people use, which there's enough of that, but also the structure, the way that we, you know, the, the order that we talk about our conversion to a particular religion so we mark ourselves out not just by individual words and phrases, but also by the structure. Hmm. It, it becomes so embedded in our identity. Our autobiography of our experience with the religion is controlled in that way. And so you mark yourself out as a, as a member of the group by conforming to yeah. a particular way of talking about yourself. And it's deeply personal. And so it becomes a display. And so I, I always tell my students, you know, the, the conversion narratives, and there are all kinds of words, for, you know, some people call them stories of becoming, or I've forgotten all the other terms now. There are a lot of terms for them. When I got but, saved. Yeah. Well, come to Jesus moment. Jesus moment, yeah. There are deconversion stories now. There are forced conversion stories, but they all tend to kind of follow a particular structure. But the ones that I get excited about are the ones that break break the pattern but again the cynical part of me sees that you know even the the non-conformity becomes its own thing mm. so you know people be, oh well, yeah there's a rebel and then that they want to be a rebel and so it, you know oh yeah it's so difficult especially in these highly charged deeply personal spiritual concepts are the, the things that affect our lives they it's so difficult to just you know be yourself to be yeah. authentic, to talk honestly. And that's, I think, one of the real challenges for Christians in particular. And I say this as a Christian myself, to to resist and to but not not in a way <laughs> to resist in a way that's that's natural, not just right. for the sake of resisting, but to communicate our faith in a way that breaks down some of these barriers and and reaches out rather than serves to kind of cement the borders of of coolness and right in you know who's the in crowd and that's human nature you know we're, we're just we're, we're desperate to to be seen as shining examples and we're hyper desperate right now because of yeah we, everything's been turned up to 11 on the volume knob I, as you were saying all of that i i thought well what's the What's the alternative? And the the only one that comes to my mind immediately, I'm sure there's multiple ways to skin this cat, but is, you know, being comfortable struggling to find the words to say, to describe my experience. Like that's, I've, I've, for years, I have a weird conversion story. I, well, it's weird to me. I still puzzle over it, but I, I do struggle with like, what is the metaphor to use? So I use the Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, like everything was black and white and then it went to color for me. And I don't, I can't explain it any more than that. Or I do love the fact that even Jesus in the gospels, you know, struggles to come up with the right metaphor with what shall we just compare the kingdom of God? Like he's just like thinking through and then he, and then he gives you like a bricolage of all these different metaphors, none of which are sufficient, but they're, mm. they're meant to like pointillistically 
paint in a picture in some way. And so maybe it's just the fact that we are not, and I say we as, in, as humans, we're just not comfortable like letting people struggle to say and try different things and that, th- that this religious language in this context just becomes, is lazy the right word? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think laziness is a big part of it, but yeah, fear yeah, comes to mind. Probably, I mean, yeah. A lot of it, I think, is fear of of being seen as not there yet or, mm. you know, not a real believer or you, you're not, you're not, you know, especially if, if your kind of story doesn't look like anyone else's or, but I think, you know, perhaps our hyper focus on the individual is also part of the problem. You know, so much of the Bible talks about the people, the body, and this kind of overemphasis on having a personal narrative. Not that that's not important, that, you know, the Lord chooses each one of us and calls us by name, but we're called into a community. Mm -hmm. And the... So the, the devaluing of heterogeneity, of, of diversity, of complexity, and, and the kind of hyper-focus on the individual is, is also, I think, driving a lot of this. So I, I see a pattern emerging, and maybe you can help me think through it, is if there's a hyper-focus on the individual, and then we, we like to elevate people who speak well in the church— and as many people have pointed out recently, and they've been pointing out for a long time, but it's become an issue, or people finally realize what an issue it is, people who tend to have hyper-narcissism also tend to be some of the best speakers, right? So we're, we're kind of, and now you're telling me the people who tend to be in the front speaking are also setting the language that kind of determines who's in and out. It seems like this is a, a bad you know, it's not just language anymore. We're really talking about elevating language that can be dangerous for the leadership in the church. Yeah. I mean, when you put it like that, yeah, it is very bad. <laughs> it's really destructive. And <laughs> Well, we've seen it. Yeah, we have. And, you know, l- language is, is so powerful. It's how we do things. We do things through language. And we use, you know, language shapes the way we think about ourselves. So, this kind of cyclical the cycle that we're stuck in is 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 harming us and it's but you know it also strikes me as it it's this is the pattern of that we're warned against <laughs> we've got to be resisting this yeah. at every step and my mind goes immediately to you know Moses who had the, you know mm. he was a stumbling speaker and was right. even you know thought, how could I be the one? How could I be chosen? That God's power is highlighted through our weakness. And so we're seeing the, the, the you know, the, the, it should be a, a, a problem to us, a warning. Hmm. And we think, hmm, that person speaks well, that, that, that's something we need to be hmm. wary of actually, rather than attracted to. I mean, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says, eloquent words empty the cross of its power. <laughs> I mean, it's, well, they, a pretty, yeah. it's a pretty strong statement, yeah. right? <laughs> I don't think most homiletics classes have taken that uh, seriously enough in some cases. So I wonder, uh, we, we've only obviously touched on just a little part of your field of study of religious language, kind of the power dynamics, which honestly I think is fascinating and, and also relevant. It's so relevant. <laughs> to, <laughs> 
This is really impactful and relevant <laughs> conversation we're having here. I'm, so, I'm sorry, I can't help myself. But it does make me think, you know, you, you've given us a few tips here. Okay, when we hear somebody who's an eloquent speaker, maybe that's a sign, like we should say, well, that might be one sign in a cluster of things we need to keep our eye on, right? That might not be just necessarily a good thing. But what is kind of the antidote to religious language used poorly or used wrongly? You know, what are there some go-to tips you could give us like, hey, we should think more about these things. We should stop doing these things. We should be careful about these things. Yeah, well, in my book, I look two of the big areas that I cover and I devote a whole chapter to each one is the language of prayer hmm. and language around death, which I see as, I mean, I, as I was, as I've been working, I kept coming across the relevance of, of this language at these particular moments and also how prayer, not just the language that we use when we pray, but even how we talk about prayer is another area. I think we need significant reform on because People claim authority by talking about prayer. You know, I prayed about it. You know that's why I did it this oh, way. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and and so we. I mean, it's hard to get away from talking about power because so much of this is about power, and so many of the problems around our use of religious language are are grasping after power. So I, I really, you know, it's it's hard for me to get away from talking about that. But would the suggestion then be, A, becoming more aware, reading your book and becoming more aware of our use of religious language, and then becoming sensitive to the ways in which we ourselves might be even even subconsciously using using language to assert power in ways that maybe if we were reflecting a little bit, we might say, well, you know, I probably shouldn't do that, right? So be j just being more careful about our use and noticing when we're using certain patterns of speech in order to to dominate or to to deepen our implore of somebody. I can I can think of all kinds of ways I do this with my own children, <laughs> yeah. which or in which ways in which I'm sensitive to, like I don't want to invoke. God on my children, you know, like God made me your father. Therefore, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of moves you can make there. So I'm sensitive to those obvious ones, but maybe I'm not sensitive to the smaller ways in which I'm doing the same thing. Yeah. So there, there are numerous smaller ways. I mean, even as, as deeply as our grammar, our grammar, you know, our, the, the way that we talk, the way that we apologize, the way that we minimize Wait, can we just talk about apologies for a second? Because oh, I know yeah. there is a bunch of yeah. people who apologize horribly. <laughs> <laughs> I know because it's taken me a long time to become a good apologizer. I think I'm fairly good now. But so tell me, tell me more what you mean by the language of apology. Yeah, I mean, I I have the same struggle. I I have to confront myself in all of these things that we're talking about because it's our nature. You know, it's our nature to grasp after power, to minimize our wrongdoing, to puff ourselves up, to make ourselves look better than we are. And apologies are one of those really important things because they're, you know, they occur at, at, a, at a break. There's a break in a relationship. And this is, you know, an, an issue that's it's so deeply embedded in, in, the, in our belief system that, you know, we're, we're made right with God. And so we're right. to be right with each other. And how do we become right with each other? You know, we have to use language to do that. We also have to use our actions. 
So I, I recently worked on a couple of apologies connected to a scandal here in the Church of England due to a, a, a major abuse case, which was in the national papers here. And so some religious language, so, sorry, some religious leaders, Christian leaders in the church issued all these apologies. There was so much ambiguity so that, you know, that there were there was justification there was minimization, you know, that they use a lot of passive forms. This mistakes were made. Yeah. Mistakes were made. Sorry, you were hurt by these Mm. actions. Well, who did the actions? So verbs become nouns, Mm. you know, so all this kind of the, the, the grammar itself can be manipulated and, and wielded to distance ourselves as actors, as social actors from our actions. There are all kinds of ways that that happens, you know, linguistically. And I, I've, I've been doing a lot of work on my website about some of that, but there's also some stuff in my book about some cases in religious higher education, for instance, where, you know, certain, yeah, it's, it's all of that kind of, we're good you're bad. We're sorry you were hurt. There's something wrong with you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be so hurt by my actions. So it's, you know, all of that comes into an apology. And you know, if we get back to the this question of you know, what are we supposed to be doing as Christians when we do something wrong, we're supposed to be mim- mimicking heaven. And all of that interferes with repentance, with acknowledging the wrong we've done, with making it right, with restoring that relationship. Yeah, I was so, speaking, I'm oh, sorry, this weekend in a, it was a group of young African-American leaders, future leaders, lots of really smart people. And we were talking about racial reconciliation. That was a, this conversation on race, but people kept on using this phrase, rac- racial reconciliation, almost like a badge. You just throw it out on the table mm-hmm. and everybody knows what it means. And one of these young African-American women just finally stood up and said, can we quit using this term? When I think of reconciled, I think of like a husband and wife who are split up and need to be reconciled to each other. Like whites and blacks weren't ever together. Like we weren't, we weren't, we weren't, we weren't ever in a co-equal relationship where we were treated the same. So rec- reconciliation is not the word that's going to do it for me. Healing, maybe recovery, you know, something like that. But how much the, the very language that for the white people in the room seemed to just be like, oh, this is my, my token that I show that I care about this thing. It was actually hurting some of the, the other people in the room, right? Yeah, that's that's a great example. I mean, that term also bothers me and also, you know, for the reasons you've outlined, but also because, you know, it's racial reconciliation has become just a kind of it's I think of almost like you just put a block on the table like it's not connected to any person. It's not an action. It's it's the way we talk about it as it's made into a noun, it's finished. Mm. It's in its complete form. I just hand it over to you and, you know, it's not connected to me in any way. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, so that all that, you know, I see that in the language around divorce as well. We talk about divorce as this kind of force out there that exists separate from people. Right. And think about making racial reconciliation into a a, a nominal, a a noun phrase actually is kind of turn it into a passive object that sits there. Yeah. I'm I'm now picking up the force on what you said earlier. So, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's, it's just a lot of bad news, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the way that we, the work that we need to do, the critical work we need to do on thinking about our own language is much deeper than I think many people realize. And so a lot of these books on, you know, 
guard your tongue or just try to talk in a loving way. They really don't get at just how deeply our problems run. And I mean, it, it's not something we can fix. You know, it's, it's like being aware of it and, and having some humility around it. And I think also paying attention to these critical moments like apologies, like how we talk about life and death, because that, you know, that speaks to what life we consider valuable, what, mm-hmm. what gives life meaning, what is a life that we would consider well-lived or a good life. Those, those kinds of things really matter. Those are the kinds of deeply human moments. And if we can, we can first draw our attention to those places, I think that's a good place to start. Well, Dr. Valerie Hobbs, thank you so much for your wisdom, your expertise, and your guidance, and you've given us so much to think about. Thanks for having me. It's really been great. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.